6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 22 through 24. Anyway, let's move on. Psalm 22, verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. The agony of Christ acknowledging that he is forsaken of the Father. Something incomprehensible to us. I think you and I are going to spend an eternity discovering what it cost him that we might be there with him. He goes on. This is a strange verse. I have yet to find anyone that can explain it to me. Jesus claims in Psalm 22, verse 12, Many bulls have compassed me. The strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. What on earth is this all about? Have no idea. Bashan is that region that we know as the Golan Heights. Known for cattle raising indeed, but it's also known biblically for some other issues. It was the land of the giants, the Nephilim, the, the uh, Rephaim, and Og, the king of the giants. The land of the Rephaim in Deuteronomy 3. Lions are often used as enemies because they're voracious beasts, and that's, that's here and several other places. But what are these Rephaim? Most people haven't done their homework about Rephaim. They know a little bit about maybe the Nephilim, the strange creatures of Genesis 6. But Genesis 6, they also occurred after that, these hybrids. There are four tribes that Joshua was instructed to wipe out every man, woman, and child of these four tribes. That sounds harsh to us as New Testament readers when we get into those passages. The Rephaim, the Emim, the Horim, the Zamzumim. The Rephaim is, the word Repha means dead. These are the walking dead. These are strange Zombie-type characters of some kind. Og was the king of them, of Bashan. In Deuteronomy 3, Joshua 12, etc. We also read about Arba, Anak, and his seven sons. The Anakim that were encountered Canaan. Numbers 13 calls them the Nephilim. Goliath and his four brothers were of that uh, uh, background. Up in the Golan Heights, there are some unexcavated structures. The Gilgal Raphaim that is... Uh, an unexcavated archaeological site in the heights, east of the Sea of Galilee, north of the Yarmouk River, um, all the way to Mount Hermon, is the area known as Bashan or the Golan Heights. And uh, this was the land of the giants, the land of these strange creatures. So what on earth are, what, what is, if Christ's hanging, he's surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. Does that mean there's, low, there's, there's cattle around him? I don't think so. I personally don't know. I, I personally suspect that they may, some kind of demonic activity going on. But he continues, verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. This is clearly a description written by David of crucifixion 700 years before crucifixion was invented. It was invented by the Persians about 90 BC, widely adopted by the Romans, of course. Even Haman in the gallows in the book of Esther wasn't hanged. That's a mistranslation. He was impaled. He was crucified, strangely. Crucifixion. They stripped him of his clothing, placed him on a cross. Nails were driven in the hands and the feet. Then he's dehydrated with intense thirst. And what really kills him is suffocation. The pressure of the hanging, the only way you can relieve the pressure is by pressing up with your feet to, relieve, to give your lungs a chance to get a breath. That's why it often would take nine days for someone to actually die that way. I mean, and because they had to get them off the cross, they broke the legs because that would, that would accelerate the whole process. They find out when they get to him that he's already died, and that's, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. The word excruciating is actually taken from this process of execution. Excruciating. It comes from crux, the, cr the cross. There's a tension effect. You need to understand, you, if you've hung a picture, you know what I'm talking about. If the, if, if the wire is very stiff, the tension's higher. If the wire's long, the tension is no more than a division of the weight. But as you spread those things, the tension gets higher. In fact, there's a relationship. The smaller the angle theta gets, the more intense the tension is as a function of the weight. That's exactly what the American Medical Association points out in a classic study of this called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, published back in 1986. Here's a quote from it. Due to the pain endured by the weight of the body hanging from the nails, which damage the medial nerves and tear at the tarsals, the respiratory torture, the cramping, the pleural effusions, concluded that death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating, literally, out of the cross. He continues, I, can, I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. This is an astonishing detail. When you read in John chapter 19, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part. How many soldiers were there there? Four, huh? And also his coat. Now his coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? That the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Don't misunderstand John's editorial comment. I don't think the soldiers did it because they knew that was required by Scripture. John's inserting an editorial comment here. They didn't realize it. That's why they were doing it. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. For that Sabbath day was a high day. Oh, really? That's not Shabbat. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was not on a Friday night, by the way. 
That won't work. The church has tried to make it that way for 1,900 years. It doesn't work. It was a Wednesday. But anyway. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. These soldiers were ordered to break the legs to, ex to accelerate the deaths, right? But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. They break not his legs. How strange. If you were a soldier and you enlisted on a 25-year enlistment, when they, when they gave orders, they took them seriously. Why didn't the soldiers do what they were told in spite of the fact he was dead already? How sure are they? They weren't quite sure. That's why the one threw a spear and all that, right? One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. And forth there came out blood and water. And from that detail is where the American Medical Association can, can reconstruct the cause of death. And he saw that it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. John, again, editorializing here. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Another Scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Those are two interesting references, by the way. We gloss over those as we read them. Not a bone shall be broken. And they shall look upon him whom they pierced. That's yet future. They haven't done that yet, but they will. Exodus 12, when the Passover is first instituted in Exodus 12. In one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house. Neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Strange requirement. They're eating this lamb, but don't break a bone. And that goes on. Again and again, they shall leave none of it till the morning, nor break a bone of it, according to all the ordinances that Passover shall keep it. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken, in Psalm 34, 20, not just here in 22. The Passover lamb was a foreshadowing, of course, of our Passover, Jesus Christ. It shall come to pass in that day, this is Zechariah now, Speaking of the future, it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, 13, 14, the big climax, the final establishment of the kingdom. And God continues, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, the one whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and they shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. I'm the beneficiary of a 35-page paper by Dr. William Welty on the erroneous and inconsistent rendering of the et asher phrase in the Hebrew that's in the Jewish Publication Society of 1917, which is a standard Tanakh among Jews. In 158 other occurrences in that publication, they render it um, one way. Here they twist it because they have thrust him through. They tried to hide this. And uh, my friend Bill had a, a, open, a dialogue going on with the rabbis on this issue, so he took it on and tracked down every Jewish publication, every way they rendered it, and it's rendered correctly in every place but here. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it, it's a very, very key discovery in the Jewish world. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, is what it actually says in the Hebrew, and it's undeniable, and it will yield a competent scholarship. It's been glossed over, of course, in uh, 
the Masoretic and other places. Let's get back to Psalm 22, verse 19. Be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, my one, my one and only, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. The word darling, by the means, just it means that one and only one. And the word unicorn is widely misunderstood. For many years it was thought to be a mythical beast, but investigations revealed that uh, there was an animal, much uh, size smaller than an elephant, very much like a rhinoceros, sometimes called a wild bull, if you will. So that's what the term really is translated to mean. Uh, Caleb is a dog, literally it can mean, or it can just be a, t a, a term of contempt or abasement. The re-im is probably the aurochs or the wild bulls, which are now extinct. Now here's where the whole thing takes a shift. We shift from the horrors of the execution to the glory that is earned by it. It goes on. At verse 22, it all shift takes place. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. A big shift from the previous 21 verses. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. All the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he is the governor among the nations. Boy, this moves on be long after resurrection morning. This goes after the ascension this is second coming stuff here. Shifting to Isaiah 25, which portrays the closing of the psalm in effect. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow of wines on the lees, well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all the nations. Boy, that sounds like Romans 11.25, for those of you that are familiar with that. And he will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from off all their faces. Boy, that sounds like New Testament stuff, doesn't it? Well, it's 1 Corinthians 15 or Revelation, what have you. And the rebuke of his people shall, be, shall he take away from all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. I always picture Ewell Brenner making a statement like that. So let it be written, so let it be done, right? The Lord has spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Whew. Back to Psalm 22. Picking up verse 29 and up to the end here. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. What's that saying? All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. That sounds like a resurrection of all, doesn't it? And none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. Many people miss this. That Psalm 22 opens 
and closes with the first words of the cross and the last words of the cross. What do I mean by that? That he hath done this. What does that really say in the Hebrew? The prefix is to sentences depending on an active verb applying to it the place of an accusative. Thus it means constantly, that is, completed. This is why it's translated in the Greek in John 19.30, it is finished. He hath done this. In the Greek it is tetelestai, which means to be finished, to be complete, and in fact, paid in full. That's what this was all about. He was in our shoes. He paid our prices completely, no discounts, paid, paid it in full measure on your behalf and mine. And I don't think we have the capacity to really understand or even imagine what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. Salvador Dali, trying to capture this on, on, on canvas, chose to use a four-dimensional cube in three-dimensional space, a tesseract. Eternity solved in three hours. Okay, that was Psalm 22. That was our warm-up. Ready to go? Okay. Let's go to Psalm 23. A little more familiar to most of us, the great shepherd psalm, if you will. And uh, Psalm of David... The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff shall comfort thee, comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Familiar to most of us. Some of you may have memorized it. Shepherds, all through the Bible, of course. Abel was the first martyr, was a shepherd. Moses spent 40 years caring for his father-in-law's sheep in Midian. David served his father as a shepherd. And God is reported as our shepherd all through the Scripture. And, of course, the Messiah is our great shepherd. These idioms are familiar to anyone that's been in the Bible at all, Old or New Testament. What about sheep? We're sheep, right? This is a little embarrassing to find out why, why sheep. Well, first of all, they're defenseless. Sheep can't defend, defend themselves, neither can you and I. They're also prone to get lost. Ask anybody that's kept sheep. If there's a hole in the fence, they will find it. They need almost constant care. You can't drive them like cattle. They have to be led. Boy, that's interesting. Think about that. How many pastors need to learn that? And they're known by name. I spent a little bit of time on a cattle ranch. I don't recall my father-in-law, who had quite an establishment, ever calling his Herefords or Charlets by name. Or Angus, I'm sure, the same thing. Sheep known by name. Now, when you go through all of this, something isn't in the commentaries, but I'll just add as my comment. They're also not very bright. Now, you still wonder why God uses sheep to represent metaphorically us? Huh? A great shepherd. He's, a, he's the one that cares and equips us in Hebrews 13. He's the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He died for the sheep. The Father gave them to him to take care of. And he can brag in John 18 that he has lost none of them. 
In John 17, 12, and also in John 18, 9, that's a primary boast of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you're saved, you were given to him by the Father. And he can make the boast that of the ones that have been given to him, he has lost none. Prosecution rests. Let's go through this a little more carefully. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The verb there, by the way, is a participle. The Lord is shepherding me. It's continuous, present tense. Guarded, led, provided, food, rest, care, bruised, all that sort of thing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside the still waters. Sheep won't drink from fast-moving streams. So they have to dam a little bit to make it calm for them to deal with it. He leads gently, the term implies, the way it's stru grammatically structured, led gently. He restoreth my soul, leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The paths there is a term for ruts, by the way, well-worn ruts. Hebrews 39 says, avoid strange teachings. Verse 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This, by, to many, is the central verse of the passage. The personal pronoun changes from he to thou or you. See, David is not speaking about the shepherd. He's speaking to the shepherd here. There's a change in structure. He is beside us, leading and calming our fears, our shepherd is. Thy rod and thy staff. What rod? It's a cudgel for defense. This isn't a shepherd's crook. That's a staff. Did you ever know, did you know that? Top of every staff there's a crook? Did you know that? Little pun there. Okay, never mind. All right. No, the shepherd had a, a cudgel to, be, to defend the sheep, and he had a crook to guide them and assist them, or counting them, or examining them. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. The term table here is a synecdoche. It's the, it's the specific for the general, or the general for the specific. Man, Dan, you've got some nice wheels there. Am I talking about his tires? No, I'm talking about his car. I'm using, you know, we, you, you, you follow what I'm getting at? So it's, that's a synecdoche. We, we use the, 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 the species for the genus. In some cases, you use the genus for the species. That's a figure of speech. He presented a table. Does he mean a table with four legs? No, no. The cuisine, the food, what you could eat, you see. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. That's what they did at the end of the day for the bruises they might have incurred, uh, a, a, a form of care. My cup runneth over. Indeed. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Back when we were very active in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, I was very tempted to go get a couple of Cocker Spaniel puppies and tie them to the front door of Chuck Smith and have them labeled goodness and mercy. Surely goodness and mercy will follow all this. Anyway, I never quite got around to that, but anyway. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This, by the way, is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28. And it's not a reference to the temple because the king did not, David's writing, king did not reside in the temple. That was for the priests. When he says the house of the Lord here, he's talking about eternity in the Father's house forever. 
John 17, first half dozen verses. And what's also pictured here implicitly is the fact that the shepherd would lie. At night, they put the sheep in a, in a, in a uh, enclosure with a door, and the shepherd would sleep across the door to, to, so the sheep couldn't get out and that, to protect the sheep from, any, from outside intruders. And Jesus makes reference to that in John 10. Anyone that doesn't come in by the... I am the door. Anyone that comes in any other way is a thief and a robber. And also Romans in uh, Revelation 7 deals with that. So the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That means I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down green pastures. I shall not lack provision. I shall not lack peace because you beside the still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. I shall not lack guidance. These are what the summaries here. I shall not lack courage of that dark hour. Either I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I shall not lack true comfort. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I shall not lack protection, preservation, or honor. Thou anointest my head with oil. I shall never lack joy. That's what oil typically speaks of here. My cup runneth over. I shall never lack fullness of the blessing. Never be rationed. I got all I need. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall not lack divine favor during my earthly life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall not lack a heavenly home when my earthly tour is over. That's what it says. Let's stand back for a minute and go back to Golgotha. Pilate's there, and what startles me is that he apparently personally wrote a titlon to put on the cross. Pilate wrote a titlon or a title and put it on the cross. The writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. That's surprising. Hebrew, obviously, because he was Jewish. Greek, because that was the widely used language of commerce in that day. Latin was coming, wasn't really established yet, but that was the official language of the Roman Empire. Pilate was skilled in all three, and he personally apparently did this. Now, anytime you and I may miss something, the priests come to our rescue. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music